You can't leave. Your journey has come to an end. Everything around you will become dark, and someone will take your hand. You'll be pleased, not unhappy. You'll enjoy moments of incredible brightness. <laughs> You think it's magic? No. I'm not a magician. Now we have to hurry because we still have to pass through a number of strange phases and you'll change. You were looking for me, just like your sister. This is what you wanted. I'm coming to get you. Tell me who you are. The three mothers. Haven't you understood? Mater Tenebrarum. Mater Lacrimarum. Mater Susperiorum. But men call us by a single name. A name which strikes fear into everyone's heart. They call us... Hello and welcome to yet another crazy adventure in Secret Cinema. Hey everyone, welcome to The Secret Cinema, the podcast that chisels through history's concrete floors in search of the films hiding inside. My name is Paolo Caron, my co-host is Carrie Chafee, and we're joined again by Emily Neal to discuss Dario Argento's 1980 atmospheric horror mystery, Inferno. Before we get into it, I just want to take a moment to celebrate reaching our 20th episode, and to thank Ricardo Ortiz for continuing his excellent work as our composer, as well as Wade, Kyle, Justin, Tony, Krista, Emily, and Ricardo again for guesting this season. Also, thank you listeners, new and old, for tuning in. Your patronage brings a tear to the eye of this old Italian stereotype. Anyway, jumping back to Inferno, I want to give a quick shout out to Daria Nicolodi, uh, hopefully I pronounce that close, uh, who plays the Countess Elise in the film, and also conceived the film's story, despite receiving no credit for it. According to IMDb, getting her writing credit for Suspiria was enough of an ordeal that she didn't bother to fight for credit this time around. No idea whether that's studio interference or Argento shutting her out, but we also failed to mention her during the episode, and so I wanted to give her some kind of credit. So, Daria Nicolodi uh, helped write this movie. She's in it. Uh, remember her. Now then, here's Carrie with the plot summary. While studying music in Italy, Mark receives a mysterious and vague letter from his sister Rose in America. Mark decides to head to New York to investigate what the letter means, and finds out that Rose is missing. Soon, Mark is engulfed in the mysteries of the three mothers. Will Mark find out what happened to Rose, or will he be consumed by the Inferno? Inferno, much like all of Dario Argento's films, has been dubbed into English, which gives the dialogue a detached, emotionless quality. Usually this is a major strike against the atmosphere of an Argento film, but Inferno is an exception because of how little dialogue the film actually contains. Most of the film consists of long, dialogue-free set pieces that are only occasionally broken up by exposition and basic introductory conversations. In this clip, a conversation between the characters Sarah and Carlo is one of the only scenes of dialogue that isn't pure exposition, but it should give you an idea about the quality of Argento's writing, 
along with the strange effect created by this dub dialogue. Also, as you'll hear in this clip, Sarah refers to the three sisters, but she's actually referring to the three mothers. The film uses both titles for the trio of witches in the movie, and we couldn't really figure out why, uh, but it's primarily the three mothers, so that's what we try to stick with in the discussion. Anyway, here's that clip. What do you do, Sarah? Study or work? I'm a music student. What about you? Oh, I'm in sports. I'm a sports writer for television. May I ask you a strange question? How strange? Have you ever heard of the Three Sisters? You mean those black singers? No. I'm talking about mythology. The tribe. Hold on. If you're talking about spooks and stuff, I don't believe in any of that. How can you be so sure? I don't believe in such things, that's all. And without any philosophical discussion. And what do you believe in? In whatever I can see and touch. Taking the place of dialogue is the film's score, an equally operatic and prog-rocky collection of music by keyboardist Keith Emerson of the band Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. Words can't do justice to the film's music, so as a transition into our discussion, we're going to play our favorite piece from the score, Mater Tenebrarum, hopefully pronounced that right, which gets used during the film's climax and end credits. It's only two and a half minutes, so enjoy it, let it set the mood for you, and meet us on the other side for our discussion of Inferno. Yeah. 
just want to quickly welcome back uh, our wonderful friend of the podcast, Emily Neal. Hey, everybody! Emily's back! Yep. Emily's back, and we're gonna get in trouble. Inferno. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And we're welcoming her back for a, another episode where we cover a confusing horror movie, but this time it's actually <laughs> one we're really excited about. Uh, Inferno, directed by Dario Argento. And I am really excited to talk about this, uh, mostly because I kind of looked through the past few episodes, and we've done a lot of really bad movies this season. <laughs> and this is one of my favorite horror movies, even though there's like so much that's just weird and not necessarily um, uh, recommended that someone would try to replicate, but it's so consistently bizarre and interesting and weird and does so many crazy things while still being a horror movie and being entertaining and uh i don't know it's just such an interesting blend of things that we'll really have to get into uh carrie you've probably yes, seen this Paolo? about yeah you've <laughs> seen this about as many times as i have like five or six times yeah. what do you think about this movie i i really like dario argento as much as his movies are baffling to me but <laughs> this one has grown on me uh i like this movie more than say, Phenomena. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but I don't think I necessarily like this movie more than Suspiria, or even, actually, while we were watching it, I kept thinking about The Bird with the Crystal Plumage, yeah. and I really like that movie, even though that's his first movie. This one, I think, especially with this viewing, because uh, we're focusing in and, and really getting into the movie, and Plus, I did some research. I really appreciated a lot more of what was going on. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, this movie is so confusing. It's really confusing. <laughs> but honestly, I mean, and that's kind of like, you kind of hinted at this vaguely, but that's a recurring thing with Dario Argento movies. Dario Argento, if you, if you watch enough of them, you kind of realize that you're going to be confused at least a little bit, and Inferno is so thoroughly a Dario Argento movie that it is so thoroughly confusing as a result, but honestly, I would say this is my favorite Dario Argento movie. Oh, yeah? Like, I like it more than uh, Suspiria and Phenomena, obviously. <laughs> uh, and uh, Sorry, Jennifer yeah. Connelly. Oh, I, I, Phenomena is probably my second favorite. Oh, but, really? uh, Yeah, we'll get into that in the Phenomena episode. Uh, <laughs> Emily, uh, you've seen this way less than we have. Uh, what are your thoughts on this? Um, well, I told you guys, I still am not sure if I've seen this before tonight. <laughs> um, I know I've seen at least one of his films before because he has a very distinctive look. Um, I know I've seen at least something very similar, so, and I was a little apprehensive because it was established early on in the film that there's going to be long scenes where there's no dialogue, and sometimes I can lose attention when that happens, but, (laughs) no, I definitely, it moved enough that I wasn't just, like, waiting for more blood. Yeah, and I think part of the thing with Dario Argento movies is you're not necessarily watching them to be told a great story you're watching because he creates this amazing visual atmosphere and i mean i know we're gonna get into this but the music yeah. is the, so good it's an aesthetic and atmosphere like that's i was thinking during this movie the person who he most reminds me of or i guess the the current equivalent of this type of thing is nicholas winding refn in movies mm. that are just so on top of it aesthetically 
where it just the look is amazing and the music is amazing and the characters might as well be robots <laughs> and the <laughs> acting might is not necessarily good and uh, but uh, like you don't some... like all the the dubbed over actors <laughs> believe it or not no I'm not a fan uh, I'm not a fan of the Uncanny Valley uh, but it's it's still like. Because of how amazing and heightened the world of the movie is and the aesthetic, those weird, bad performances play very well into that. And it all kind of works together. It's like, it, I don't know, I, it, at first, the first time you see a Dario Argento movie, at least for me, I, you laugh at the dubbing and the bad acting and the weird lines and line deliveries. Yeah, I'm and not going to lie. The first time I watched a Dario Argento movie was Suspiria, and everybody I was watching it with was like, man, man this movie's amazing. It's so good. And I just, I didn't get it. Yeah. I was like, I, what is so great about this movie? Like, you know, there's all these cheesy blood scenes and... People are clearly not speaking English, but their lines are in English. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, what's going on? Well, and, and if you watch the trailer, it's like, uh, it's a little misleading because it's just a condensed version of all the gore just put together, spliced with screaming and loud music. But with... Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> yeah, yep, knife, in, knife in neck, blood. <laughs> and But the movie has, like, all that filler between the exciting parts is the better part. Yeah. yeah. Definitely. So should we get into the plot? Yeah, we should at least do a quick rundown of the action, just because, as we kind of all hinted at, this movie is really tough to follow because of how bizarre it is, but also because there is a lot that is maybe explained only in the vaguest sense, or, like, they, they, they'll give you exposition... And it won't be emphasized at all in a way where it is entirely impossible to forget about it. So we should at least try to walk through the plot so we can even explain half the stuff that we want to get sure. into. Sure. And part of explaining the plot of this movie is explaining that this movie is technically the second in a trilogy of movies that Dario Argento did called The Three Mothers. And that is what opens the movie, is this woman, Rose, reading a book, or reading about the three mothers, or, you know, explaining what the three mothers are. Um, and I wrote down, according to Wikipedia, that the three mothers are a triumvirate of ancient and evil witches whose powerful magic allows them to manipulate world events on a global scale. Woo! <laughs> um, but... Specifically, uh, in this movie, Rose, she's researching the three mothers, and she feels very eerily suspicious that the three mothers have something to do with the building that she is living in. So she writes her brother a letter. Her brother is living in Rome, and he's studying music, and he gets the letter, and all of a sudden all this creepy stuff starts happening to him. Uh, and people who are surrounded by him start being affected by the three mothers. And so he decides, after reading the letter, to go to New York to visit his sister Rose and find out what the hell is going on. So he gets to New York and sh Rose has disappeared. And so he is investigating, trying to figure out what uh, has happened to her. And... That's basically the rest of the movie, is him trying to figure out what happened. 
Should yeah. I get into what happened? <laughs> no, well, I mean, we. I guess we can kind of get in piece by piece, but it's really, like, the reason I thought of Nicholas Winding Refn is because the plot itself is, like, almost comically skeletal, if you really yeah. break it down. It is very, it's almost like every character who we see die is is also given the job of supplying, like, one or two pieces of exposition on the way to their death, yeah. but then also given, like, three or four totally random things that happen that seemingly have no connection to anything. And so you get to, um, you get to each of these scenes where, like, this plot is, like, very gradually unfolding, but then in between you have these long scenes of a person who enters a building. And, like, and then the they walk down like, a staircase. Yeah. And then they enter another hallway. And then they walk through a door that leads to an underground cavern. Yeah. And what I just realized, I don't know why I didn't pick up on this, every character is either a murderer or is murdered. Yeah. So at one point, which we'll touch on later, when there seems to be an extra coming from nowhere into the scene, you're like, wait... This, this doesn't fit into the pattern, and then you'll see what happens with that extra. Yeah. You can spoil it, Emily, if you He's want. a murderer. Yeah. <laughs> the hot dog guy's a murderer. And so, so another person I thought of with this movie is Brian De Palma, because... Just because of the colors? Just, not just because of the colors, but because Brian De Palma, in his less prestigious movies lives or dies on his set pieces. And mm -hmm. if a, a De Palma movie doesn't have at least, like, one good long take or really complicated action scene, it's not really... But he probably like, didn't direct He it. probably didn't care. <laughs> he probably, it was like, that's, like, Wise Guys or yeah, something like ugh. that. But, um, so Argento movies, you don't, yeah, like we said, we don't come from the plot, you come for the murders. Every Dario Argento movie <laughs> is a, just a vehicle for fetishizing violence. Well, and I don't. I wrote. I thought about this during the movie, but most of his movies, it's only women that are getting murdered. Yeah, <laughs> like they're getting tortured and murdered, which reminded me a lot of Eaten Alive. Yeah, which we just watched. <laughs> well, no, that's the part of the thing with Suspiria. Besides the fact that it's all women, Suspiria was supposed to be like a ballet school. And so it was, like, written for, like, 12-year-old girls getting murdered. And people were like, we're not going to fund a movie where this happens. <laughs> so they had to, like, make everyone older. But if you listen to the dialogue in Suspiria, they didn't rewrite it. They just, like, made everyone older. <laughs> yeah, everyone's 18, so 12. But they're all, like, like, throughout their scared. conversations and stuff. Yeah. yeah. What's going on? Yeah, a lot of that type of stuff. But so what is... What are the big set pieces in Inferno? Set pieces as in, like, sequences. Like, sequences where it's, like, the underwater ballroom. Oh, like, yeah. Like, that's, that's what I mean by a set piece. So, like, uh, okay, so we'll start with that one. The vi Really early on in the movie, uh, Rose, after she mails the letter to Mark, she is wandering outside and sees this grate covering a stairway to the basement. And one of the things that she reads in the Three Mothers book is that there's a... A, a key in the cellar, right? A key, it's something in the, the cellar, but the it's... The second key. The second key yeah. is in the cellar. And so she goes down there, and she is wandering through this, like, sort of crawl space. It's tall enough for her to stand under there, but it's just, like, junk and beams and... But it's lit with, like... 
pink and blue and red lights. Yeah. yeah. Like it looks gorgeous, it looks even amazing. though it's an ugly crawl space. And um she there's this little hole in the floor in the center of the room, and she it she crouches down to look and her keys fall off of her belt her keys. loop. Yeah, her keys. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and they fall into this hole and um Basically, she has to. She tries to fish them out, and it falls further. So she has to dive in. And this room that she dives into is this old ballroom. And it's like uh, you can see there's old chandeliers, and there's the big post, uh, big painting on the wall of uh, Mater Tenebrum. Uh, yes, I, I, yeah, I, I have trouble pronouncing that. Uh, and uh, just things that have been mentioned in the Three Mothers book. So it's kind of confirming to some degree that her hunch is right. Uh, just, it, it, oh, but we don't really know more details than that. She, uh, eventually fishes it out and, uh, Man, and she really can hold her breath. Yeah, she holds her breath probably. It's okay. She's underwater for like five solid minutes. Yeah. <laughs> and during those five minutes, at one point, a body floats out and keeps bumping <laughs> into her, like, hilariously. Like, she kicks it away and then it somehow, like, floats back into her and keeps headbutting her over and over again. That's a good jump scare, though. It is really good. You do not expect it. And this movie's jump scares almost all work because the movie builds so much suspense. And yeah. this, that's with this underwater sequence, and we kind of met, Emily, you mentioned that, like, there's almost no dialogue. This is like the very first scene in the movie where they just kind of reveal like, oh, this is going to be people alone in buildings. And they they just, I don't know if it's necessarily, it's the combination of the music and cinematography, but it's also the way in which they use buildings. Like the fact that we start above ground, we see this staircase through a grate so we're shot with like a, a creepy point of view up at her she descends down to the sub level then she descends down further and she's alone and no one's talking and and it's just getting further and further from safety and then a body shows up and she's still there's still not actually like a, like a killer coming after her yet they're just like all of this is just building yeah. this anxiety and tension and through the rest of the movie uh, even when we're not in a set piece, every building in this movie just feels so unsettling and unsafe because... And I, I you know, that's something yeah. that I would usually complain about where I can't figure out how a character is getting from one room to the next. But for some reason, the way that this movie is directed, it's incredibly believable. Like, it, it does, at times, it seems like the architecture and how, you know, from one room to the next, it's like, no, there's no way that that room leads to this other room. But it just works. I like, I, I, I'm specifically thinking about when the brother, he cracks the cement in the floor yeah. and he pulls up the floorboards and he crawls into that crawl space and then he walks out into a hallway and then he opens another door and he's in this like balcony over another apartment. And it, it seems like, okay, this, what, how is this building built, you know? <laughs> because the mothers are smart and they hired the most genius architect. Yeah, they have an architect slave. At least that's how we refer to yeah. himself. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, you, we've complained about that before in other movies where, you know, like, going from one scene to the next, you're like, I don't understand how that character got there or the transition just doesn't work, but... I'll give credit to either the editing or the directing in that it works. Yeah. 
Maybe it's the set design, too. But. I'm going to say it's, like, really just a combination of a lot of things that really makes... It's, like, a weird... It's really weird for us on this podcast to have a movie where so many elements really are working well. And, like, <laughs> like and so... It, but, like, the score is amazing, and the score isn't even necessarily scary, but it's just, like constantly reliable and it's consistent and then the cinematography is always consistent we never have like an outdoor scene where it doesn't feel like the nighttime scenes. yeah that's even, like even if it doesn't have the same crazy lighting there's something about the architecture or just the wallpaper or the furniture that just like makes it consistent and so i think that's really uh just that that consistency throughout the movie is like really what makes this work even though it seems like these spaces are impossible or like this this building couldn't really exist if we were trying to like draw a blueprint out but when you watch it 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 never feels like you're ever leaving the atmosphere that the previous scene established it's it's really amazingly well maintained and yeah. yeah that's really rare to see especially and even with Dario Argento Dario Argento himself is not great at this mm-hmm. and so it's I like it's just this is his freak film where like everything just perfectly complements each other. Yeah, but oh, go ahead, Emily. He said it was his most sincere and purest movie. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I was gonna say that. Um, I think especially the architecture itself speaks in that it makes the humans within it feel really small yeah. consistently because yeah. when they cut from the building in New York to the lecture hall in Rome where the brother is. He's in a huge lecture hall with the huge, um... Like, stadium like, seats almost. Yeah, stadium seats. So you, as, as like, tiny... They look like tiny characters, and the building is a character. The architecture is the character that's more overwhelming. It yeah. really is. Like, the building that... The, with this apartment building that the most of the action takes place in in New York is more of a character, really, than any of the characters in the movie. It's kind of like House. Yeah, it does. (laughs) Where the house is the villain. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and like, it's, it's called Inferno because the house burns down. Yeah. It's not called, and it's not called Inferno because our hero defeats the house by burning it. It, it essentially is more or less an accident. And it just is like, it's basically the story or like the, the witches and everything that's going on with them is so much bigger than the people that the movie follows that, yeah, like now they're dwarfed by architecture and they're dwarfed by history and they're dwarfed by this power that surrounds them. And basically I kind of realized towards the end, cause I was trying to think of like how the movie was justifying killing off everybody, but Mark. <laughs> and I think the logic is that Mark never understands the plot enough to well, actually be a threat to the witches. I also think he's never seeking out the three mothers. That too. He's seeking out his sister. He's yeah. trying to figure yeah. out where she is. But, for example, like Sarah, uh, who is a fellow student of Mark's in Rome, she finds the letter that Mark's sister writes, and she searches out the three mothers, and then she ends up dying. Yeah. And same with Rose, and same with, like, pretty much everybody who lived in that building. <laughs> so, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. He, he's kind of oblivious to the underlying problem of the building. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he's just more worried about his sister, which, good for him. Well, yeah, and, the, and <laughs> even, it even comes up, like, we, we mentioned there's the scene where 
I will eventually explain it when we talk more about the ending, but Mark runs into a character late in the, the movie, and the character says, um, well, if, I assume you know who I am, and Mark says, no, I don't! <laughs> and it's just like, in that scene, it, yeah, usually the character would have been trying to seek out an answer to something, and Mark does not, this, the backstory that the movie is like, at that point trying to explain to us, Mark does not give a shit about. <laughs> he genuinely <laughs> does not need to know this. And, uh, that, like, I, I love that. It's like, a, a good horror movies do kind of play into that, like, confusion and dis being disoriented. And it's not really scary to watch a movie where everybody is, like, calm and self-possessed and are like, well, I know what to do. Would you? That's like what Predator basically is. <laughs> like, that's why Predator's not scary. Uh, Would you say this movie's scary, though? I, when we first saw it, I did think it was genuinely scary. And it was because of, I mean, I, I thought the suspense was really effective, but the scene, there's one particular scene that I was like, this is a great, scary scene. And... I'm going to talk about it now. Uh, yeah. so, so after Sarah goes to the library, and I'm, there's, there's some stuff we should get back to on the library thing later, but um, after Sarah leaves the library, she is freaked out, and she gets back to her apartment, but she she just, like, is she's been chased, and she is just upset. And so this guy named Carlo gets in the elevator. Oh, he had a name? Yeah. And huh. I, I, according to Wikipedia, he had a name. I don't know what it was actually <laughs> I thought said. it was Carol. It, <laughs> Carol was the caretaker. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> All right, but um, so so uh, Sarah says to Carlo, who she has never met, we have never seen before. She says, like, basically, I'm scared. Will you stay around me for a, a little while? And he's like, Yeah, sure. He's uh, like, Hey, beautiful lady. <laughs> okay, lady, yeah, whatever. <laughs> I'll come um, to your apartment. <laughs> and so he goes to her apartment, and they're just kind of talking, and. She tells him about the three the three mothers. I think yeah. I've called it the three sisters a couple times. Not <laughs> they that... called it the three sisters too, though. Did they? they did they? Were... Yeah, somebody did at one point in the movie. They were referred to as sisters. Hmm. The sisters of death. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. I, I maybe that's why I'm confusing it, or maybe I'm just confusing it with the three sisters phenomenon from Lake Superior <laughs> that has been referenced <laughs> in other episodes of this. But either way. Um, so, uh, Sarah tells Carlo about it, which is presumably why Carlo dies in that scene, ah. because, uh, I mean, I don't know necessarily that he's, like, looking into it, but she was gonna definitely die, <laughs> and then he has been given all this information, so might as well. But, they're in the apartment, I think she goes into another room, I can't really remember why, but she is, she, when they're talking, she puts on a record, and there's this classical music playing, and all the lights are on, and we're in this big, colorful, mm. it's just a very, it's loud, I, I, I'm thinking of it specifically because it's loud and colorful. That's, like, very specifically what we're seeing. We're getting all this light. Yeah, there was then, a lot of apartment envy from Emily and I. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That but, scene. So, She's a student who has the most beautiful apartment oh, ever. Yeah, <laughs> and, the, and the poet who has this New yeah. York penthouse, practically. Yeah. Uh, but, so... This is happening, and it's a very... I mean, the previous scene was creepy, but there's nothing at all happening in this well-lit apartment with these two people and the music to suggest anything bad. And all of a sudden, the power cuts out completely, and then after a few seconds, comes back up. 
And it starts doing this thing where the power completely flickers and with it, the music and the lights go on and off completely. So it keep, instead of it being like a brownout where it, the power goes off and then it comes back on and some things have been turned off, we're getting like cutting back and forth between like, like complete life and like complete death. Like we're cutting light and sound and darkness and silence. And we're just cutting back and forth between that. And Carlo is like, yeah, no, I'm just going to check the breaker and I'm going to fix it. And you're like, he's dead. It's like, I, it's like <laughs> you don't have to have seen this movie before to know Carlo Sus is dead. Suspense over. <laughs> so Carlo walks down the hall and it's completely dark. And he's, she, and Sarah's like, keep talking to me. Uh, and he's like, it's fine. And he's walking. And I was at this point, I'm scared because I'm like, he's definitely going to die. When is he going to die? This, like we, the suspense has been building since Sarah got to the library. And so we've been sitting in suspense for like 15 minutes at this point and nothing, no one's been attacked really yet. And so he's walking down this hall. He goes into another room. We don't see him at all. We hear his voice and Sarah is freaking out because the lights are coming back on and the lights are flickering more. And there's a scene where Sarah is like running nervously through the apartment following uh, Carlo's voice. She can't see him. And the lights keep turning off and coming back on. And it's just like, clearly something is doing this. It's happening in a way where it's, a, if not a person, it's, it's like an intentional thing being done at Sarah. To like, And it's very much letting us know in the audience that the, Sarah and Carlo have no power. And not in the, the punny sense of the word. <laughs> but, like, they are helpless against what is happening. And so, uh, Sarah gets into the room where Carlo is. And I love this because, as, as great as the scene is, this is, like, a really effective tension breaker. Which is, uh, she, the whole time she's like, Carlo, keep talking to me. And Carlo, once she gets in the room, he says, I fixed it now, you see? And then... Five seconds later, he walks around the corner and has a knife all the way through his throat. <laughs> and I can't, for the life of me, figure out how, what exactly happened but in those five seconds where he gets, unless, like, just a ghost inserted a knife into his throat right then. Well, the three mothers did it. The three mothers did. But then he, Mark, uh, not Mark, Carlo comes around the corner falls on Sarah, bleeds all over her, and then the mysterious shadow, a uh, mysterious shadowy figure pulls the knife out of Carlo's throat, and then stabs uh, Sarah right in the spine. Yeah. And at the end of scene. But that sequence... Uh, the, Spooked you? That's, yeah, that is... I'm really, really hard to scare at this point. And it was... That's one of the most effective sequences. Definitely the most effective sequence in any Dario Argento movie for me. And, I mean, not in terms of beauty, but in terms of genuinely being scary without letting the camp of the dubbing and the like bad stilted performances and sure. over color none of those things intrude on this there are genuine moments where i forget that i'm watching a dario argento movie and i feel <laughs> genuine fear for people because i know something bad is going to happen yeah actually yeah. when we were watching the movie i kept thinking about i i mentioned this earlier but i kept thinking about the bird with the crystal plumage and the scene where the guy witnesses the woman getting stabbed and he tries to go rescue her and there's this glass panel. Um, it's like four storefronts wide. It's a huge glass panel. And he goes up to the glass panel and he's pounding on it and he's pounding on it. And there's another 
uh, row of glass panels behind him, and the last one was open, and that's how he got in to this little glass room. And while he's in there trying to bang on the glass to rescue the woman, the last glass panel on the outside closes, and he can't get out, and he's trapped in this glass paneled room and I I remember watching that scene and being like oh my god what would I do I would yeah. like I'm witnessing someone getting murdered and I'm trapped in a glass room like I, there's nothing I can do you know and the guy is just freaking out and yeah that I mean he is good at building that tension and that that uh suspense yeah that's like all Suspiria is, yeah. is suspense. Oh, yeah. And, well, and, and there was a, it's a painful moment to see a knife sticking out of a spine. Yeah. yeah. Like, it was way, I think I cringed a lot more than when the woman got guillotined. Yeah. Twice. Yeah. That's, that's harder to imagine. Like, I, I, I imagine if my throat is getting cut, I'm probably dead. Yeah. Like, in that way. But I can imagine, like, getting a sharp pain in my spine. I, like, I, I just, like, yeah. and just thinking about how, like, the, I, I just, like, see, when you see it happen and she can't even reach the knife, she's, like, it's, Trying like, right in the lower the center stairs. of her back. Yeah, it's just, like, so grim and brutal. But that, not in, like, a, a tortury way, just in, like, oh, that's... It's it's so straightforward. In a yeah. it sucks to be you type. Yeah. Way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and so going back to the three the three mothers trilogy. So Suspiria, which was the first of the the trilogy, that movie focuses on the the mother of size, and she is supposed to be the oldest and the wisest, which is why at the end of Suspiria. They're like all worshiping that one old witch. Yeah, and that's the 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 mother in that movie. Yeah, and, and then it, and I noticed in this movie too, uh, uh, the line "It's all going to burn down just like before," which Suspiria ends with the ballet studio burning. Oh down. yeah, there's so yeah. many references to Suspiria <laughs> yeah. in this movie. Yeah, like um, the fact that somebody doesn't somebody get guillotined in Suspiria. I can't remember. Uh, oh, yeah, something kind of like that. It's not exactly a guillotine, but glass cut someone's yeah, throat. Gla yeah, glass cut it's somebody. The, that opening 15-minute, like, the girl runs the, the yeah. studio and falls through the window, and the other girl gets the noose. Yeah, it's yeah. kind of like that, yeah. Yeah, and, and so in this movie, the mother um, is the mother of darkness, and she is the youngest and the most cruel. So that's why... Basically, everybody in this movie dies. Yeah. <laughs> or is a murderer or a slave to a murderer. And then the last movie, which actually came out like 27 years after Inferno, it's called The Mother of Tears, which, guess what it's about? The Mother of Tears. <laughs> yep. And she is the most beautiful and the most powerful. And I haven't seen that one, so I can't speak to Yeah, none to of it. us have. Yeah, I can't but, speak But as a character, she makes a slight appearance in yes. this movie. Yes. When Mark, the brother, is in his class in Rome, and he sees a beautiful woman carrying a cat in <laughs> their class. Yeah. And she's God. just staring at him. She's mouthing something to him, and I never figured out what the thing is that she's mouthing to him. I wonder actually, if she actually wasn't mouthing something. They just didn't dub over what she was actually saying. I think, well, because he has headphones on when she's doing it. And yeah, so I that's think, true. But, like, I and also, I just want to point this out, because I do, I, I do kind of want to segue into uh, another set piece thing real quick. But you bring point out the cat. The I somehow 
until watching this time, did not even put together the witches and cats connection. Like, it's <laughs> totally escaped me. And watching this, I was like, the whole time I was like, okay, I'm going to figure out why there's so many cats in this movie. And probably get an hour in, I was like, because they're fucking witches, Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, witches like cats. Yeah, I was like, I was like, man. There weren't a lot like. of brooms, though. <laughs> no, and there were a couple lizards, which doesn't really seem to fit. But, uh, okay, but the reason I want to talk about the cats is because we need to talk about the cat bag set piece. <laughs> we need to talk about cat bag. We need to talk about cat bag. Um, and this one always sticks with me. Just, I mean, it's really long and bizarre. And I, the first time we saw it, uh, for other friend of the podcast, Kyle Surma, saw it with us. And I remember him, like, <laughs> more or less being, uh, very uncomfortable oh, through the entirety of this Poor scene. Kyle, he was so upset about all the cats dying. But they didn't really die. They Just like in Butterfly Effect, they did not actually murder the animal in the, the burlap sack. <laughs> this is a second movie on, wow. this, on this podcast where a, a, an animal is killed in a burlap sack. And to be fair, the person who is drowning the cats, he gets murdered. Yeah. So, like, By, al- well, almost immediately. Let's, yeah, let's kind of, do, do you want to Well, and I, I'm going to need some help, because I cannot remember why he even put the cats in the okay. Because he was living next door to the haunted house, and the cats kept coming into his store, his antique store, and attacking him. Oh, yeah, okay. and he, he, and talks, he, kept, he kept him in a bag. Yeah, he talks to that caretaker, and he's like, you gotta keep him away, and she's like, shut up, you old gimp, or whatever <laughs> she says, and so he goes back, and yeah, he finally had enough, so he he like has like, oh, yeah, you're right, then Burlap's like already has like five cats in it, he grabs like <laughs> one more cat, puts it in, ties it up, and this guy- He uh, takes it to Central Park. Yeah, Central Park, uh, uh, and this guy, what's his name, Kazanian? Yes, uh, so Kazanian, which, by the way, he's the guy who sells the Three Mothers book to Rose. And so oh. he is, like, inadvertently the person who gets the plot started. And so maybe the reason he gets killed is not because he knows too much, because he's not trying to find he out. Dis- he's the disseminator and the harbinger. The catalyst. Yeah, he's the, har- he is the harbinger, but also he is, he's just, he pissed off uh, the caretaker by killing the cats. And if they're the witch's cats, then... That it, especially if, if uh, Tenebrum is the cruelest of the mothers, then, yeah, she would probably get pissed if a bag of her, her cats were drowned. Yeah. But, so, uh, Kazanian, who is on crutches because one of his legs, I guess, just doesn't work or something. Uh, seems he, like both of his legs didn't It really seemed work. like somehow he... he I, it didn't really make somehow a Somehow he carried a bag full of angry cats to Central Park. Yeah, angry cats. <laughs> Well, he's on crutches, but anyway. So he gets to the uh, a body of water in Central Park, and he throws it in the water, and, and then he uses just... his crutches to knock it down. And there's, of course, like some sort of mechanical thing in the bag. So the bag is like kicking, and there's like cat noises. It's pretty. I mean, if you really want to suspend disbelief, it's a pretty upsetting scene. But it's like for, I don't know. It's so hard for me to ever believe that there really are animals being murdered when there's any sort of way well, that I don't have to actually see That's, that's because you, you've seen Cannibal Holocaust. Yeah, I've seen Cannibal Holocaust. <laughs> that changes a person. But, um, so, he's killing the cats, and as he's killing the cats, they're showing, like, all the the classic New York rats. 
rats <laughs> that are everywhere. Like just big, like red-eyed yeah. rats. There was like around. a rat party going on. There was like a sewer <laughs> that it was like <laughs> leaking into this body I'm a, water. I'm a, the, the rats were in collusion with the cats. Yeah. <laughs> rats and cats. Best friends. Cats, <laughs> cats eat the rats and the rats eat the cats. And yep. they all hate humans. You get the cat skins for free. But, um, so they, he's pushing the cats down. Eventually, he gets the bag, I guess, like, fully underwater or whatever. Yeah, and he's like, nailed it. He's like, work done. He turns immediately, nosedives into the water, and then is this, he's this, belly like, up on the, belly up, it's like, belly up. it's he's almost as if his belly is on a sandbar in the water, because <laughs> his, yeah. like, legs and head are, like, he's like, help me, help, and he's just, like, somehow completely above the water, like, struggling. And he's reaching, he's trying to reach his other He's crutch. probably floating on all the trash. <coughs> Something the like water, that. <laughs> which is what the rats are trying to get to, since they're eating through his body to get to the trash. Yeah, and then he puts his hand on a piece of trash and a bunch more rats come out. And then we sit through what has to be two minutes of him being chewed by rats. <laughs> like, a lot of yeah, rat chewing. it's not pleasant. It's, it's, like, pretty brutal. And at the very beginning of the scene, it's established that there's like a butcher and like no, food, there's like a food truck. But it's a food truck butcher. Like he's like he has like a butcher's knife and he's like chopping meat. And you see like you don't really see him. You just see like that's a, a, a that's person. a common theme. Chopping meat. Yeah. People who chop meat are murderers. Yeah. But this so this guy <laughs> see Sweeney Todd. Yeah. So this guy um, after like two minutes of uh, Kazanian being chewed up by rats, he finally yells, "Help me!" loud enough, and this food truck guy looks up. And immediately runs out of the food truck, uh, runs on the water. <laughs> I don't know if you saw this in the trivia, no. but according to uh, director William Lustig, who was the pro- one of the production managers on this movie, and William Lustig directed Maniac and Maniac Cop and uh, all sorts of crazy stuff. But he Maniac said, Cop is great. Maniac Cop is great. But he said that the way they did this scene was they put like. You know, like, you know in Being There, when at the end, oh, when like Peter Sellers walks platform? on the water? They did that, where they put, like, a glass platform so this guy could just, like, run across the water. And it's, like, one of those things where you're watching it, it's, like, it just looks like he runs through a shallow, a shallow part of the water. Yeah. It doesn't really, the effect does not come across. But he runs across, and uh, Kazanian's yelling, help me, help me. The guy gets up to him and immediately just chops him in the neck with his butcher head killing him. <laughs> like, coming out of we never see this cook again. And it is one of the more satisfying mo- moments of the movie. Oh, yeah. Because you just watched this guy murder a bunch of cats. And you're watching him get tortured. So part of it, too, is you're like, oh, I want to see this rat torture end. But and the very last thing you would ever expect from this moment is that the butcher is going to murder him. <laughs> yeah. it, like, nothing sets it up. It and, seems like he's just going to come help. And so it's kind of, I, it kind of, the first time you watch the movie, it kind of works as a jump scare. Because you're just like, you're like, like You're like, wait, <laughs> why are they bringing in a person that we've never seen yeah. before? And then, uh, and then, I, you jump, I feel like you jump and then you laugh. Because you're just yeah. like, what is, what is even happening anymore? Sh- this leads to one of my big questions, yeah. is who are all the murderers? They're yes. not all the same... There's some male, some female. Yeah. 
Well, and that's another thing, too. The reason I wanted to talk about the library scene again is because I wanted to talk about that guy in the basement yeah. of the library who's, yeah. like, making... He's like, cooking a huge vat of oatmeal. And, and he has, like, little evil. fires like everywhere. boiling oatmeal. <laughs> and tries to stick Sarah's head in it when she has a book. Well, and the thing, too, is they really make it it's seem like... They really make it... <laughs> <laughs> Turn that book don't, back in. <laughs> don't you know the Dewey Decimal System? <laughs> but they make it look like... Uh, uh, that guy doesn't actually care about Sarah until he sees that she has the book. Right, because, but what is he? Yeah, I, I have no idea. So, do you think it's like <laughs> as soon as the three mothers are mentioned or brought up that they take over someone's body? But he had the gnarly, like, gray hands with the fingernails. Yeah. Same as the murderer who killed Rose with the guillotine. Well, yeah. and same as the three mothers. Like, the, at the end when you know, they're engulfed in flames, that's what their hands look like. Oh, and, the, and actually, the guy who kills the butler, too. The, the, yeah. Yeah. Like, it just, uh, but it's like, yeah. is, but again, is I it, think that's just death's hands. Yeah. It, but is it like, yeah, so again, though, is death taking over other people, or does death turn into other people? Or is it like, I don't know, to me, it just kind of makes, it adds to this feeling, ultimate doesn't really make sense or get explained, but it adds to the feeling of helplessness for the characters, that yeah. like, death can literally come from anywhere. Like, any person, any random non-speaking extra in a scene could in theory be a murderer. And yeah. not the murderer, just a murderer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that is a good a good point, Emily. That anyone who isn't murdered is a murderer. Even the random yeah. butcher yeah. guy in the Central Park. There's yeah. only two roles. You get one, or you get the other. And then, well, I guess there's Mark. Oh yeah, yeah. and Mark. He doesn't count because he was almost murdered. Yeah, they but, tried really hard. Yeah, he's just too good looking with that mustache. Yeah, he looked a little bit like Carrie always. Yeah, more vanilla Carrie. Not as handsome. Like, like uh, Carrie always is the runway version, and then <laughs> Mark <laughs> is the catalog version. Mark is the B-movie horror movie. <laughs> yep. He was on a lot of soap operas in the 90s. He has the face for that. Yeah. Yeah. I think he was on As the World Turns. As the World Burns. Oh! Inferno. <laughs> hey, so, um, you want to talk about the music? Yeah. Sing, yeah. sing it. <laughs> yeah, we uh, yeah, the music for this movie, and again, I'm going to be controversial, I'm going to be even more controversial and say I prefer this score to Suspiria's score. Oh, yeah. And Suspiria's yeah. score is amazing, but this, this, I've listened to this, the score for Inferno just separate, uh, just walking around on my headphones. It's on Spotify, believe it or not. Hey, the score. And, uh, yeah, and it's it's awesome. It is really good. Oh, my with God. I would, but you know what? I would not <laughs> want to listen to this while I was walking around the streets of Chicago at night. Oh, I, I oh, not at night, yeah. But like, <laughs> when, I, when I'm leaving work and you have, like, like the Rose and the Library music playing and you're, like, <laughs> yeah. walking down a flight of stairs, it's amazing. Yeah, but, I feel like if I listened to it at night walking around, I'd be always looking over my shoulder, like, <gasps> yeah. and who's I mean, turning into a murderer around it was, me? It was really smart for him to set it up that Mark and Sarah are music students. Yeah. Because it makes sense that they would be listening to good music, and then when they go back to Sarah's apartment, she plays really good music. Yeah. It's not like 
And you know, like, if I invited somebody over, I'd have a great opera on vinyl. <laughs> yeah. like and so that... You really, don't, Emily? Maybe, actually, I might. Yeah, you, but you might. I, I do really like opera. So I really liked... I liked that, but one of my favorite music scenes was when Sarah was in a cab and it was like jazz music. Yeah. Yeah, it was like that really it's fast like, beat. Yeah. She wasn't she wasn't being chased at all. She was on she was searching for the book. I mean it's kind of in the beginning, but that was that was great. They said in the trivia that Dario Argento specifically asked the composer, who we should mention, was Keith Emerson. Keith Emerson, who actually passed away uh, a few months year. ago. Yeah. yeah, he passed away uh, in March. Uh, Keith Emerson of Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, a band much like Alan Parsons' project, where the primary thing I know about them is that my dad loves them. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, and then Emerson, Lake, and Palmer's, I guess their most famous song, uh, I don't actually, I think it's called Carnival, but it has the... Welcome back, my friends, to the show that never ends. Come on, see the show. Come on, see the show. That's like all I remember from it. It's, it's a pretty really? annoying song, honestly. But the music in this, well, like, but, and he is specifically a keyboardist. Yeah. So and, and that's like really definitely a prog rocky feel to some of the yeah. music in here. But a lot of and a lot of great keyboard, like a lot of just like solo piano, and then yeah. like like the, the jazzy upbeat stuff. Yeah, that part's great. But specifically, Emily, the, the music in the cab, they said in the trivia that Dario Argento asked Keith Emerson to incorporate this opera, like, lyric or uh, motif into the, the soundtrack for the movie, and the cab scene is where he did it. So you, but, like, while I was listening to it, I didn't even notice that there's, like, an operatic element to it, because you're right, it feels like a jazz, keyboard. I think maybe that's why I liked it. It just felt like a lot of what I liked, but in ways I hadn't heard before. Yeah, it's a really interesting piece of music. Yeah, and he, I mean, when this movie came out, he got a lot of shit. They were like, hey, this is not as good as the Suspiria soundtrack. But now, as like the years have gone by, he's gotten recognition for how good that soundtrack actually is. Yeah, it, it holds up way better. I mean, Suspiria holds up really well, too, but a lot of like the effects and the pacing are really dated. And just like, because this is just an onslaught of stuff, like it's really hard for an onslaught to age yeah. poorly. <laughs> well, and, th and that was another thing, too, they said is that Dario Argento really wanted something completely different than what Goblin did for Suspiria. Yeah. So that's why he talked to Keith Emerson, because he was like, hey, you do <laughs> uh, weird 70s uh, keyboard music? Yeah. Well, and this is this is another reason why I love Phenomena, is because Phenomena's score is like Iron Maiden and Billy Idol and stuff <laughs> like that, where it's like English language, like 80s, like heavy rock and metal yeah. and stuff, where it's like, it's such a weird element to add onto this sort of tone. But um I also just you guys talking about that, uh do you remember when we watched Dario Argento's opera? No. Uh that movie, uh you guys talking about the use of opera in this, we should really rewatch that. I do <laughs> love opera. I don't remember anything about that. The only thing I remember, do you remember the woman who is like she's tied up or taped up or something and she has the needles put on her eyes so if she closes her eyes the nails will like stab her eyelids, and so she has to just keep her eyes open so that she can like watch horrible stuff happening. No, I don't. Remember That's the main that. thing I remember. Just because yeah. I remember being really stressed out by it. Whoa. Yeah, man, Argent uh, Argento loves to torture women. Yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Ooh. 
Um, so some other background on the movie. Um, you know who was supposed to be Mark? Who? James Woods. What? Whoa, my God. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> that would have been great. Yeah. I actually, I would love to see that, but he was shooting video drum instead. Man, uh, Okay, worth it. That's yeah. worth it. Yeah, They're totally a, worth it. A but. much more defining role for James Woods, yeah. too. This role would have been, like, he would have been awesome in it, but it would have been thankless for him. Yeah. Like, you're not a fun, complicated role at all. No, no. <laughs> yeah, but, God, imagine what that movie would have been like. Oh. I think it would have almost taken me out of it. Yeah, because yeah. you'd be like, James Woods. Yeah, because then I can just, like, suspend belief that it exists in this other world where these people I've never really <laughs> seen before, even though they have been in other things. Yeah. Well, and um, I also learned that the budget for this movie was $3 million, and it got a very limited release when uh, it came out in 1980. Actually, Dario Argento is quoted as saying, like, if you saw Inferno when it was in theaters and you weren't living in Italy, you were very lucky. (laughs) (laughs) Because it really was only released in Italy and, like, a few theaters in the United States. Um, Which is weird because uh, right before this he did Suspiria, and Suspiria was a huge hit. Fox uh, Studios, they made, like, a ton of money off of it. So, it's interesting that his follow-up, they were like, nah, I don't think a lot of people are going to want to see this. Um, the other thing I learned is he was super sick when he yeah. he directed this movie. He was, like, suffering from... I read conflicting reports, but they, it's either he was uh, suffering from hepatitis or meningitis. Ooh. One is Nin- way worse. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, neither are good. Neither are good, but... But yeah, but because he was so sick during the movie, he had actually invited one of his mentors to advise and help direct on the movie, uh, Mario Bava. And Mario Bava ended up directing a lot of the movie, even though he's not credited as the director. Well, also, did you see who the assistant director is? No. Lumberto Bava who, first off, uh, is related to Mario Bava. Ah. I believe he's his son. But Emily, you remember Demons? Probably remind me with that. We watched it last year at the Massacre, the one with the movie theater with all the... the Yes, I was That's directed by Lumberto Bava. Oh my god, I'm so glad you mentioned that because I was was trying to think, oh, I know there's a movie where people are trapped in a theater and the architecture, again, I was like... And the color... It's another architecture horror movie where yeah. it's, like, very much about the the one building. and like, I would not have guessed that Demons was what it was. I thought it had something to do with movies. Yeah, Demon, it's, Demons is uh, yeah, it's really good. Carrie, did you watch Demons? No, I don't think I've seen it's it. It's an Italian-dubbed horror movie. Oh, yeah. right up my alley. Yeah, I, uh, and, and Mario Bava actually died in 1980. Oh, so wow. this was, like, the last the thing last that thing he, he worked really on. worked on. Um, or maybe he was killed by the uh, the, the three mothers. <laughs> yeah, the mother. He of... got too curious and went in. These mothers who don't actually have children—they're just evil stepmothers to the world. <laughs> well, and I read actually—it's he was the assistant director. I read in the trivia that the assistant director 
had to wrangle so many cats yeah. during the movie <laughs> that he was like, I never want to see a cat again, ever in my life. <laughs> that makes sense. <laughs> Which totally cats. makes sense. There's a, it was, I was just thinking, too, like, because the reason I started thinking about cats so early is because cats start showing up really early in this movie. Like, the when Rose sees the cellar for the first time, there are three cats yeah. right next to it. And, uh, and like you said, when the mother of tears first shows up, she's holding a cat. And there's like, there's just a, t there's actually a bunch of cutaways throughout the movie of cats eating mice. Or, or like, or just like me in a cat's yeah, mouth. Yeah, that too. And or cat's eyes and stuff. There's just like cat, the cat thing is throughout. And they never make it a thing where it's like, the cat is the witch's power. It's just like, oh yeah, but there's also cats. They're just around. Like, it's just, they're around. I love that. I love, like, so many things in this movie, they're just like, eh, why not? Like, why not also just dump this element in here? Well, and I think, I think Argento has, like, a real, uh, I don't want to say boner, but he's got a real, a real thing for, uh, animals. Yeah. Because he also has an animal trilogy. Of, of movies, like The Bird with the oh, Crystal yeah. Plumage. There's a... Cat and Nine Tails yeah. and Four Flies on Grey Velvet, right? Yeah. Yep. Yep. And so, and every single one of his movies, except maybe Suspiria, there are animals or, like, in phenomena, insects. Oh, no, in, in Suspiria, there are maggots. Remember the scene where the maggots oh, go through yeah. the ceiling? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's always, like, some element of... Phenomenal says the chimpanzee, but no spoilers for that one until you hear that episode. <laughs> Maybe yeah. cats are, like, the one animal that these mothers have sympathy for because the girl Rose gets killed, and then when her brother shows up to the apartment building... The woman hides a chunk of meat in the kitchen. Yeah. Like, oh, obviously that's his sister, because she's hiding it from her brother, and then she chops it up and feeds it to the cats. Like, like, oh. they, like it's like a, a I didn't good think of it that way, but they, God, that's a really good way to think of it. That I, I did not consider for a second. Cats are also predators. Yeah. Yeah. I did and not consider for a second that was the, the sister meat. I like that was <laughs> it was just such a like that moment I never actually thought of it as anything other than just like a really wonderfully jarring moment because it's he walks in and then all of a sudden there's a close-up of like red blood meat <laughs> and then it's just never we like she covers up with butcher paper actually carrie what it made me think of was like a quay brothers moment yeah it was just like a, a thing where all of a sudden meat is introduced and meat in uh, especially with like oh you see all like the fake argento blood in this where it's like almost like neon red it's like so bright and then to see like a meat all of a sudden it's like it's it's almost it almost makes the meat shocking by contrast because it's so real yeah. and it's like something that is for real dead that is all of a sudden been introduced into this movie kind of like the same thing when you see that cat bite the head off the mouse like towards yeah. the very end or i guess to a lesser extent when you see the lizard eat the the moth yeah. <laughs> earlier in the movie or like it's, it's, it's not a real bloody moment, but on a similar note, uh, just, and again, like a crazy thing that now that I'm really thinking about it, I have no idea why this happens, but when Sarah goes to the library earlier in the movie, she's taking a ta she's taking that taxi, and when she, she's, she's in there, she gets, she takes the taxi just because she's leaving school. She reads Mark's sister's letter and then decides to go to the library. Uh, once she gets out of the car, they have this close-up where she grabs the door handle and there is a tiny little pin 
Like a thumbtack Oh, a thumbtack. I'm not exactly sure where it's even sticking out of, but it's somewhere where when she grabs the door handle, she pricks her finger, and she pricks her finger, she pulls it away, the taxi immediately drives off, and the shot pulls out. Like So she's dwarfed, again, by the library, by the city. There's no one yeah, it's around. It's an empty street. It's this really bizarre moment. It's like, for me, that's the moment where Sarah's suspense starts. Because it's such a weird do thing to think, see her get injured like that. Do you think that the blood represents, you know, her start of her investigation that's into the being three mothers? By death. Yeah. I think that's that sounds right. But it's like, it's so non-linear in terms of that interpretation. Like, it, it's never like, we needed her to bleed because we need the blood yeah, to make the stuff. Yeah, it's not It's very again. much just like, it's like something weird happens to be like, okay, <laughs> weird things are going to start happening now. And like, it's, it's just like a, like a trigger to let you know that things are off. Things are not good at this library. Yeah, she's not safe. You're not going to be safe yeah. at this library. Um, yeah, I just, that, that's such a, there's so many good little weird moments like that. Um, what are some other cool, like just strange things that happen on the sidelines? Uh, well, I mean, okay. Like, I'm trying to think. Well, That's one, I did. This is this is um, just like more of a Argento thing, and not less like a clever thing, and more just like for, he does the shit all the time. But uh, the see, when Mark finds Sarah's dead body, he's in this room and he's just like looking around. He doesn't see her, and there's what turns out to be a doorway covered with cloth, and um, <laughs> yeah. he oh, yeah. turns and looks, and Sarah. Her like her fingers like push through the cloth, and then her bloody body falls like face forward through it. And later, when Mark is like leaving the crime scene, he says something along the lines of like she was dead when I got there. And so it begs the question: How did she get there? How did she get into that position uh, where she is like leaning, uh, presumably hands first against this cloth thing, ah. and waiting to just fall well, through? Well, yeah, because the last time we saw her, she had a knife in her back, and she was trying to climb up the stairs. Yeah, but ah, that's a good question. I didn't think about that. It's like in sleepaway camp when that girl gets stabbed in the shower, and then just like her body stands in the shower for like <laughs> hours until someone fights yeah. her and she falls down. Oh, sleepaway camp! Oh, what a great movie! A really great movie. I do. I another crazy scene for me is that scene you mentioned where uh, Mark goes into the room and the guy says, "You must know who I am." And Mark's like, "No, I don't know." <laughs> and the guy, the only so this guy that presumes everyone knows who he is, he's in a wheelchair and he can't speak without putting a microphone on his larynx and connecting it to this like huge. 1980s. This, like, room-wide sound system. Yeah. There are, like, speakers in every corner of the room, and he has, like, this, like, countertop-sized computer. He's kind of talking because like he's he got... he is the room. Yeah. yeah. He's kind of talking like he's got emphysema, almost, and he's, like, you know. Yeah. And, um, he, uh, I just love the detail of the, the microphone that's on his neck. Yeah. And, and, um, you know, just that, like, weird aspect of like why yeah. is that why can't he just talk like a normal person yeah there's so there's so I, many did the movies. three mothers take his voice there's away? so many movies that have that end of the movie expositional scene and it's so nice to see it first of all done in such a bizarre way anyway but then also be like but and he he has to speak through a computer because why not or like, <laughs> like, i kind of get it because he himself is kind of being made immortal by 
being the architect of the house. Mm. So he needs something that is also built and man-made to be able to communicate with other humans. That makes sense, yeah. Because he himself is probably really not much of a human anymore because the house was built so long ago. He should have been dead years ago. Yeah, yeah. I don't know why he's still around. Other than to be, be a the slave. slave. Yeah. yeah. But he's a useless slave. Yeah. He's just and in then a wheelchair. A, and then, like, the other really interesting part of that scene is when uh, he tries to inject Mark with that whatever it is, the syringe of something kind Some of yellow. Serum, yeah. <laughs> and Mark ends up knocking him down and he falls out of his wheelchair, but he still has the microphone connected to his neck, and so he's, like, choking from the microphone being hooked up to the stereo system. Yeah. I just love the idea that, you know, that's... It's such, I just love so that perverse. series of... Yeah. <laughs> I love that yeah. series of events. It's so interesting. Yeah, there's, like, it's just such a detail... It's, like, a needlessly detailed thing, but it improves that scene so much because it's... It gives, it gives him so... It gives Argento so many things to film. Instead of yeah. just watching this conversation happen and then Mark tries to run away or they, like, fight or whatever, it's this, like, we you have to see all these little details. And so you get, like, a, so, so much more of a picture of the room and of the a feel of what's happening in the scene because there are so many points of reference that you have to be aware of. Yeah. And, it's, I mean, it's kind of the reason why the first few times you watch this movie, it's so confusing despite how yeah. ultimately straightforward it is because there's so much to process. They well, really and they trust your intelligence. They don't do a great job of explaining the three mothers. No. Even though it's referenced constantly in the movie, but every time I watched it, it's actually, it's kind of like in Images with all the unicorn stuff, yeah. where I was like, this doesn't matter, I don't need to pay attention to this. <laughs> I, I actually, this was one huge hole that you guys can maybe explain and fill it in. It seemed like that caretaker who was chopping up the meat and was obviously evil, but you could I couldn't figure out how she fit in, it yeah. seemed like there was like, concurrent plans for murder like the mother in the yeah. house obviously is evil but the woman the caretaker wanted to kill a character we haven't even mentioned yet whose name i don't remember the rich neighbor in the apartment building oh yeah her name was like elise, oh, elise. yeah elise. yeah yeah why so she was murdered purely for her gems i thought she got murdered yeah I, <laughs> her it gems. did seem like gems. it did <laughs> seem rich lady it did seem know. like she got robbed but it all i thought she got murdered because she saw the figure dragging mark i i was under that impression yeah. or because they did the scene where she whispers through the pipes and then there's that really amazing shot where uh, Elise and Mark are talking and the camera zooms in on the vent, but it's like yeah. bobbing up and down. Uh, yeah. Again, with just one of those things where it's like he could easily have just zoomed in and this, the effect would be the same. Well, I mean, the shot would convey the same basic information that yeah. the sound is traveling in there, but that little bob just makes it so much weirder and so much more interesting. Yeah. And it cuts to like the pipes on the inside of the wall, which is one of those things where like it's weird to say this, but it reminded me of the scenes in red three colors red where it shows like the the cable that goes under the ocean like the information traveling oh, yeah. montages but it's like that in here showing elise's words going through the house to uh, uh modern to neighbor i did really like that but again why did they make a big deal out of her being rich and then stealing all her stuff after she was dead because it seems like the point of killing is because they love death 
Yeah, I don't well, know. Well, maybe they were corrupted by the house, and then once they fulfilled their usefulness, they were murdered. Yeah, well, because in Q nineteen, because weren't they going? Weren't they going to escape? They had this money now, and then they were going to escape. Yeah, so the they butler, were going to make a life for themselves. So the butler so. got his eyes pulled out, and the woman caretaker she just caught on fire. Or she dropped a candle when she saw that the. Butler. Wait, those blue velvet were they, curtains. Were they going to take the jewels and then escape? Is that what you guys said? I don't remember. Because if yeah, because I guess that would kind of make it make sense. Like they were going to yeah. abandon the house, and so they were killed yeah. because the house is an ecosystem. It needs all the the parts to it. Uh, yeah, it I needs don't know. all the murderers. Yeah, that is that is kind of a hard to fill gap. But again, based yeah. on how 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 this viewing went, I could totally imagine rewatching it and finding some other little obscure detail that covers yeah. this. I mean, we I've seen this movie probably like six or seven times and I feel like this is the first time where the actual plot had sunk in. Yeah. <laughs> like, the last, you know, handful of times I've watched it, it's just been like a visual experience. Yeah. It's like an aesthetic whirlwind. Yeah. Through. It gets started so quickly, too. Like, I mean, there's the scene in the beginning. It starts with the exposition scene right out of the gate, but does it in such, like, a dreamy way that it, like, segues so smoothly, like, from, like, dream into nightmare. And then stays in nightmare, like, the remainder of the movie. Yeah. Man, can we talk for a second about how beautiful those red walls are? Yeah. Yeah. Man, Suspiria is like that too, though. Yeah. That whole house in Suspiria, the wallpaper, all the sconces. It yeah. is nice, though, that the mother of death did allow all those plants to live in her <laughs> <Yeah>. house. <laughs> She's so considerate. Yeah. <laughs> and she had all those nice, clean crawl spaces for everyone to go through. Yeah. Although maybe the, cat, the plants were just there for the cats. To eat could, or to pee on? To pee on. Mm. And the cats got to kill Elise. That yeah. was probably fun for them. Oh, yeah. And, and as you pointed out, Emily, you can totally see the hand throwing <laughs> the cats onto Elise. <laughs> like, actually, watching this time, there's, like, multiple shots where you can see. Because the cats are not... It's It doesn't help, too, that the cats are hitting her in a way that could only happen if they were thrown. Like, sometimes the cats are, like, flying, like, sideways or upside down <laughs> at this woman. Yeah. And, uh, and, and yeah, it just eventually just... Somebody got too greedy and are like that. It's just that you see like a hairy Italian arm reaching from the bottom right corner of the screen. And this movie definitely does the Dario Argento blood that looks like spilled paint. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. That was another reason when I watched Suspiria for the first time, I was like, why do people like this movie? This blood looks yeah. so fake. Well, and when but um, that's not about the fake blood. When Carlo <laughs> gets stabbed in the neck and then the knife is pulled out, then you see he turns his he falls and then there's no hole yeah. on his neck. <laughs> yeah. Argento doesn't really go for realism, and it like it it helps. If, if these movies were too real, he's already he's already being almost, creepy, as almost fuck. sexually. <laughs> torturing and murdering women so if it was also realistic it would be unwatchable it would yeah. be like legitimate pornography but it because it has that like like think about the scene in suspiria where there's that the girl in the opening where her like chest is open so that her heart is exposed oh, and yeah. we see the shots of the knife going directly into the heart multiple times and the heart is like beats and then gets stabbed and then it beats and like blood 
comes out the hole. It's like, there's no way. It's like, there's, it's so, but it's like so heightened and crazy and like an image you would only see in a horror movie. And yet it's so heightened that it's not possible to be like, what if that happened to my heart? Like you're, you're not, you don't think like that. You're just like, oh, that woman is dead. <laughs> that woman's yeah. really dead. Well, I mean, I don't really have anything else uh, to touch on. Yeah, I burned through my notes. Emily, yeah. any other no. stuff you want to mention? So let's teach something about Yeah, let's get movie. a teachable moment. Uh, I started yesterday, so. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can start. All right. Um, for me, I, I think I have taught this lesson before, specifically from our Married to the Mob uh, episode. But production design is so important to creating a creepy, interesting world in this movie. And I think this movie would have not been half as fun, half as wild, uh, half as captivating if it didn't have the set design and um, just interesting colors and, and set pieces that it has. I mean, part of the reason that this movie, we've watched it so many times while still not knowing what the hell is going on, is because it looks beautiful. And part of that is Argento's directing, but a lot of it is the way the lights are, are set up in the movie, or in the scene, and the way that even the, you know, the red wallpaper or the plants or, you know, the way that the cats are moving around, just like everything in the movie looks like it was very carefully placed. And... I really appreciate that. I, I'm a real sucker for movies that build a world within um, themselves, even if it's not necessarily a realistic world. Like, um, I always think of Jacques Demi. Yeah. And he's got, you know, like those costumes and he's got just people dancing in the street. And it's you're... perfect you mentioned Jacques Demi because Kazanian is from Donkey Skin. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There you go. Um, and, uh, yeah. I, well, and even, like, a more contemporary reference would be, like, Wes Anderson. Yeah. Where there's just, like, a real aesthetic to the film that isn't about the directing or the acting. It's just about the world that's being created in the film. And I really appreciate that. I Sometimes it can be too much, and I would say that someone who suffers from that is Wes Anderson. <laughs> <laughs> but other times it can just work so well, and I think it... That's one of the things that, for me, this movie does really well. I 100% agree. And my my teachable moment might not be... I don't know how to put it, but uh, <laughs> I had to, like... I think I have to, like, teach myself to take myself out of criticism sometimes. I don't know a lot about film. I just know I experience films in a way as... Through a novice, eyes of a novice. And so right away when... The girl, Rose, goes to the basement and sees beautiful, like, pink and blue lights. My first thought is, no, why would there be pink and blue lights in this cellar? <laughs> like, no, this doesn't make sense. You're a very literal movie watcher, though. I'm a literal person. You told have... me about, like, children's movies that you had to have your mom explain because you were like, Mom, this doesn't make any sense. <laughs> Emily, yeah, no. Emily, as a small child, did not understand metaphor. Um, so my, I guess I, it's a te this movie was a teachable moment in itself for me. Oh. So I'm turning it around, like, this was an entertaining movie as soon, and the, the, it was like a flip switch as soon as you said, yeah, it's so beautiful, and I was like, 
you know what it is yeah. it is and I just need to stop looking I don't need to look at it through a lens like why is there lighting in this color why you know why would she go in that cellar that doesn't make sense and I think if more people kind of could approach movies like that less like me as I'm well, prone to do I think I, I I love that Emily what you just said but I also think that there's like a fair balance because you have to you have to be critical sometimes yeah. like if a movie doesn't make any sense then you have to be like wait why is that character doing that but yeah, like but this isn't the type of movie to look at it through that lens yeah, so, yeah, yeah. You, have, you have to be willing to approach a movie on its terms yeah like you you can that's a good yeah. way of putting it I like that because I don't need I don't want to project anything on to movies unless they are just not worth it. Yeah. yeah. Like, I guess the best way to put it is you wouldn't judge pink flamingos on the same merits you would judge Citizen Kane. Oh. Like, they're two... They're great. Yeah. Both of them are great. Yeah. I would love to see Orson Welles in drag. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. John Waters doing, like, a Citizen Kane remake. I would suspend belief. I would watch it. I yeah. would watch it. And actually, what, yeah, I, I, I even had to think of, like, if I wanted to get... Don't you think of... Rosebud would end up being, like, his dildo? Yeah, I, just, like, you I don't want to know what a Rosebud would be in a John Waters movie. Anal, anal yeah. beads? Yes. Um, yeah. uh, but I was thinking, like, if I, you know, if I were to describe this movie to my friends or family to get them to watch this, besides telling them to listen to this podcast as an intro, to just kind of sit back and enjoy the experience rather than um, think about it too much. Yeah, I feel like we, before we watched it, we, we were like, Emily, this movie doesn't make a lot of sense. <laughs> and But then, like, while watching it, we kind of made it make sense through just talking just it out. Just teamwork, really. Yeah, yeah. teamwork. <laughs> the pieces fit if you force it. There you go. Yeah, that's a great teachable moment, yeah, Emily. That was really good. Yeah. Uh, yeah, go, Paolo. All right. Well, my, I guess mine's more specific, and I'm going back to this well, but Inferno has a lot of things that I really never see in horror movies because it's so willing to try weird stuff. And one of the best things it does, and we kind of talked about this, is its commitment to long almost dialogue-free scenes where primarily oh, one yeah. person is experiencing something. And even though we don't have a detailed understanding of these characters' inner lives, there's really no psychology to the characters in this movie at all. Argento, through his skill as a director, is able to create this feeling of, like, you feel helpless as you watch these people in these situations. And like I said, for me... Uh, I, I was genuinely scared at times and you don't know where these scenes are going. And since you don't have a, a talking or you're not trying to focus on anything else, but just this person's experience of this environment, you experience that environment and therefore you find it creepy. You're paying attention to the dark corners because there's not other stuff you're paying attention to. You're paying attention to the light. You're you're watching this, per like, especially in the library basement scene, when you watch Sarah go to the exit, and then she goes down the stairs, and she's not out yet. And so she goes around another corner, and there's more doors. And then she goes through a door, but there's it's not the exit, there's a guy there. Yeah, or, like, or like when, um, when Rose <clears throat> dives into that underwater ballroom and yeah. then you don't expect there to be a dead body in it <laughs> yeah and that happens after two minutes of her underwater and all you hear is like the gurgling of like air bubbles rising yeah. to the surface and and just 
he is so good at building suspense throughout this movie with basically just trusting his ability to craft an image. And I really think uh, if you really want to see a really great example of how to very strategically use an actor in a location to build an effective scene, uh, pay attention to this movie. I mean, granted, he does have more available to him in terms of sets and budget and lighting, but it's that doesn't change what he's doing with the camera and what he's doing with um, what he's having his actors do and the way in which it plays out. It is... Uh, I wouldn't always say Dario Argento is a great director, but there's a lot of examples of really, really great directing, uh, like uh, him at his best as an auteur in this movie. This is like the definitive Argento auteur movie, and if you want to see him just nail one person dialogue-free sequences, this is the way to do it. This yeah. is the one he does it in. That's a good teachable moment, too, Paolo. Yeah, there's a lot to learn from this Man, movie. I hope people are listening to our podcast. We did a really good job. <laughs> yeah. Well, like but, I said at the beginning, we finally watched a movie we liked. We didn't watch, <laughs> we watched fucking Rat Race or I Hate Valentine's Day. <laughs> good point. Yeah. We like that movie. Yeah. yeah. But hey, listeners, make sure you tell your friends uh, about The Secret Cinema or check us out on Facebook or Instagram or our website or, you know, just uh, like plaster posters uh, in your city. If you know. see us in the street, point us out to your friends. Be like, hey, there they go. The Secret Cinemas. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, thanks for listening. Um, Emily, thanks for coming again and uh, talking with us. Thanks, guys. You'll be back. We hope. Uh, yeah, she'll be <laughs> back. Don't worry. Well, um, oh, am I going to lead the outro? You can. <gasps> Do it. Oh, my God. Carrie. Okay. Uh, uh, let me get this right. Wait, let's drum roll. <laughs> I can't, I can't do a drum roll. <laughs> All right. <laughs> that was pretty good. Along with my opera singing, too. Uh, anyway, I'm Carrie. I'm Paolo. I'm Emily. Thanks for listening. Secret Cinema is produced and edited by Paolo Crow. All theme songs are performed and recorded by Ricardo Ortiz. Any additional music or samples come from the film covered on this week's episode. All logos and artwork created by Carrie Chapin. You can follow Carrie on Instagram at Carrie Saw This and see more of her artwork at www.carriechapin.com. You can watch Paolo's short films at vimeo.com slash paolograve or read more of his ramblings about film at letterbox.com slash Cinema is a commentary and criticism podcast, and its use of film dialogue and film music for illustrated purposes falls under the fair use provisions of U.S. copyright. Thanks again for listening. The Secret Cinema is a production of Larry Layton Productions. All rights reserved.